Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. What you say your product does, how you describe where your product is to be used, are very important details with respect to your medical device. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that's right. I'm talking about the intended use and indications for use statement of your medical device. Today on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I have a chance to catch up with Mike Trues from Vascular Sciences, and Mike and I talk about the intended use and indications for use and how important this is to getting your product to market. Imagine using a strategy when it comes to your indications for use and intended uses that can allow you to get to market faster. Wouldn't you want to do that? So be sure to listen in to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru, John Spear. Today, we have a familiar guest and somebody that you enjoy listening to on these podcasts, and that person is Mike Drews. Mike is the president of Vascular Sciences. Mike does consulting for medical device companies. You know what? He also consults for regulatory bodies, FDA, Health Canada. I just had a chance to catch up briefly with Mike, and, and he is traveling all over, well, at least I'm guessing the globe, working with medical device companies, working with regulatory bodies, trying to set everyone straight on the topic of medical device regulations. Mike, welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you so much, John. It's always a pleasure to be back and, and to talk with you and your audience today. Well, Mike... Are you ready to talk about something that confuses me at times? I definitely am, John. Let's go for it. All right. And here's the topic, intended use. The reason that confuses me is, well, intended use, indications for use. You know, those, that's my confusion point. What's the difference? Why are they the same? And I'm guessing you can set me straight today. <laughs> well, I'll certainly try, John. Let's focus on intended use first. So this is, as you know, one of the most commonly used buzz phrases in all of regulatory. And I think that there are a lot of people that they think they understand what intended use means, but they really don't. A lot of people, for example, think that intended use means what your medical device is designed to be used for. And that's not, in fact, what intended use means. A lot of people think that intended use means what your medical device could be used for. And once again, that's not what intended use means. Intended use is all about what we say, our label claims. In the regulatory world, it's what I call the high-level labeling. So it's all about what we say. And I've got a lot of examples we can use. But intended use is first and foremost about what we say our device is to do. Does that make sense? Does that help clear up that side of the equation? It helps a little bit, yes. Absolutely. And I'm sure as we chat here for the next few minutes, uh, you, we'll go through some examples and, and be able to make that even more clear to, to not only myself, but to our listening audience. Absolutely. 
And on the, the second half of your question, on the indications for use side, that's a little more, as the name would imply, the reasons or the situations where we would use that particular device. And by the way, these terms are not unique to medical devices. We use these same phrases for drugs and biologics and combination products as well. So th there is some people, and sometimes even myself included, we will use intended use and indications for use synonymously. There is some overlap, but they're not the same. Right. The most important thing for the audience to remember is that intended use is all about what we say our device is to be used for, and indications for use is under what circumstances, under what conditions we would use that particular product. Right, right. So the key thing, I think, from a product classification standpoint is really gets into that indications for use, what we claim the product does. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's the basis for regulatory product classification. Yeah. And that's a good point, John. Let's tie in the classification idea to the labeling. And I'll give you a very simple medical device example. In fact, this example is right off of FDA's website, a scalpel. If we were bringing a scalpel onto the market, one of the first questions we would have to ask is what class is it? And the classification of a medical device is directly a function of what we say about it, its intended use. So for example, if we bring a scalpel onto the market for a general indication for cutting tissue, for example, that scalpel is class one. On the other hand, the exact same scalpel if we say that that scalpel is to be used for the eye, for example, in ophthalmological surgery, in retinal surgery, for example, that same scalpel becomes class three. Now, you don't have to have a PhD in regulatory affairs or an RAC after your name to appreciate that, gee, there's a pretty big difference between class one and class three simply because of what you say. The scalpel itself is exactly the same, molecule for molecule. The only thing that's different is what you say. So the real question becomes, if a company is bringing a scalpel onto the market, even if it's for surgery in the eye, why would they label it for the eye? Because it's going to make their regulatory burden much higher. So the challenge is, and this gets into, uh, you know, advertising and, and so on and so on. The challenge is, how do we bring this scalpel onto the market, uh, you know, for a general indication of cutting tissue as a class one, and at the same time, encourage either subtly or not so subtly encourage surgeons to use it in other applications, like, for example, in the eye, where it would be class three. Now, another thing for the audience to keep in mind is what we're talking about thus far is purely from a regulatory perspective. There are other things that we need to consider as well. For example, reimbursement. Oftentimes, what we want to say from a regulatory perspective is diametrically opposed to what we want to say from a reimbursement perspective. So we might be able to get a scalable onto the market through the FDA as a class one for a general surgical indication. But I guarantee when it comes to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, right. who establishes the reimbursement codes, they're not going to reimburse for that scalpel unless it's specifically labeled for the eye. Right. So this is the dance. This is the discussion that we all have to have within our companies as to where we play within that space. Right. John, do you have any further comments along those lines? Well, I just know from firsthand experience and dealing with, with like 510Ks, one of the sections of a 510K is your in indications for use statement. And, you know, FDA has a wonderful form that you fill out. 
And in firsthand experience, FDA is very, very, they want you to be very, very much to the point about what your indications for use are that you're, you're stating about your product. And what I found even recently as well is they almost want it to be word for word verbatim with the predicate device, which I find pretty interesting too. So, so that's been a little bit of my experience about that, how important that indications for use are. And just sometimes little words do matter <laughs> and they can change the whole, the whole process altogether. Like your example is a good one. There's a big, big difference between being class one versus being class three. I'm sure everyone listening knows that. If, if you don't, class one is a, requires no submission to the FDA. Class three is a, a PMA and re- often requires a long clinical study and can be very, very expensive to bring a class three device to market. But the interesting comment, Mike, that you offered is that reimbursement piece, because I think that's a topic sometimes that that we don't think about as medical device product developers. We think about we have this cool idea. We want to indicate it for a specific use. We want to bring it to market. We want to understand that regulatory pathway. But we do forget about that reimbursement pathway. It can be a costly mistake, John. I can tell you that there's a growing trend in the industry to not just consider regulatory early in the in the in the development process, but also now to consider reimbursement early in the process as well. And perhaps this is a topic of a whole different discussion. Maybe yeah. we could talk about this in a, in a different podcast. But I feel very strongly, and I do a lot of presentations at some of the MDM conferences on regulation and reimbursement and how do you integrate the two together. You have to have a good regulatory strategy. You you have to have a good reimbursement strategy and you have to have those things in place or at least begin to think about them at the very beginning of your product development cycle. Right. Any later than that, I don't want to say it's too late, but the earlier the better. Sure. Coming back to what you said a moment ago, John, more on the uh, the regulatory and the labeling side, sure. uh, when you said little words matter, you're exactly right. I agree with you 110%. 110%. Regrettably, I spend an awful lot of my time wordsmithing. <laughs> and that is, you know, I, you know, my background is engineering. Whether I'm designing a physical widget like a medical device or I'm designing a clinical trial or I'm designing a label like an indication for use statement or a regulatory submission. To me, design is design. They are absolutely no different. And so, for example, I was just in California recently working with a small medical device company who's developing a medical device. We designed five or six different indication for use statements, all describing exactly the same (laughs) medical device. And then I did sort of a regulatory burden assessment and a regulatory risk assessment on each one. Basically, what I did was I said, okay, if you want to say this about your device, this is what you're going to have to do. If you want to say that about your device, that's what you're going to have to do. And then we had a discussion with the company, with the senior management team, not just from the regulatory perspective, but from the product liability perspective, from the reimbursement perspective. And we had to decide as a company where in that gray area we wanted to play. Because at least in my experience, John, and you can chime in as well, where one company might decide to play in that space may be very different than what another company might decide in very similar cir- circumstances. So there is no right or wrong. It has to do with with a number of different factors. And one last thing that I'll pick up on that you mentioned in terms of the 510K, y- you're right. There is a trend at FDA to want more and more specific statements like, for example, in your labeling and your indication for use. However, there is no regulatory requirement for that. 
Right. You can, and I often do, push back at FDA if they want me to be more specific than I really want to. But you have to, you know, you have to know when to pick your battles. Some things are worth fighting over, and right. other things are not. But the other thing that you mentioned is they want, you know, copy and paste from the previous 510K. I'll be brutally honest. That is the easiest way in order to bring a medical device onto the market through the 510K. Right. That is where you just literally copy and paste from the previous 510K. The problem with doing that is you're by definition now creating a Me Too product. Yep. And this is and this is one of the reasons why we have so many Me Too products, so many Me Too devices on the market, and so few new or novel. And maybe that's a topic of a different conversation <laughs> as well. Why do we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Me Too products in so few new and novel ones? Yeah. Yeah. I mean you hit on a couple of things that, like you say, we could dive very, very deep, but but the thing yeah, let's revisit at, at another conversation uh, the the Me Too versus novelty because because I think that will be interesting to kind of dive into that because there is that balancing act for sure. But the part that that you said a, a moment ago that I think is is intriguing to me is is the example of the the California company where you crafted a handful of different indications for use statement. And the reason I want to pick on that just a bit is. What I understood from your example is each of those indications for use, use statement that you crafted, each of those sounded like they could have had a significant impact on design controls and design and development activities and, and probably more specifically in the area of things like verification and validation. That's that's absolutely correct, John. As a quality and a design control guy, you know that all of that is going to be a direct result, if you will, of your regulatory strategy. So not only will the physical design of your device affect your quality and your design control requirements, what you say about your device, in other words, the labeling, the indication for use, as we've been talking about, is going to affect that as well. It may even affect it to the point that in some cases, some of the very low-risk medical devices are actually exempted from design control requirements. So it may be that if you really tone down, or as I sometimes say, dumb down your indication for use statement, you might not have to even worry about design controls. Now, this is a topic that you and I have talked about in the past. Right. I personally have a problem with that. I personally have a problem with companies who want to just simply avoid design controls because, as we've talked about before, yeah. there's nothing in the design controls that I don't consider to be prudent engineering. Right. But nonetheless, you are exactly right. What you say about your product, i.e. the, int the um, uh, intended use, can definitely influence your quality strategy and your design control requirements, your verification and your validation, all of that stuff. Right. And so without going super deep today on the topic, let's imagine that, that I'm a company that has a, an indication for use in mind for, for my what I believe to be somewhat novel technology. But imagine that I develop a regulatory strategy that is about going to market first with an indication for use that is very much a me too, that can then allow me to kind of establish a baseline, if you will, with, with FDA and regulatory bodies that can get my product to market and at least hopefully start generating some revenue, even if it is in a me too capacity. While in parallel to that, I'm, I'm developing additional features and benefits and a more expanded indications for use. And then I'll do a, a follow-on submission then after that. 
you know, do you have any thoughts about about that strategy or approach? It's a terrific strategy. I've used that many, many, many times over the years. What you're describing, John, to use a baseball metaphor, is the difference between swinging for a single versus swinging for a home run. I would much prefer, if I had my choice, to swing for a home run, maybe even a grand slam. <laughs> right. The problem is, when you swing for a home run, you have a higher likelihood of striking out. So putting all of the claims, all of the bells and whistles in your medical device from generation one, that although it's tempting from an engineering perspective to do that, you have a higher likelihood of striking out, that is of not getting your device successfully on the market through the FDA and everything else. Right. So in this risk averse industry that we've evolved into, many companies don't wanna do that. Instead, they'll come out with, again, I use this phrase with all due respect, a dumbed down device both in terms of design as well as in terms of labeling. That is, they'll swing for a single, they'll get a man on first, they'll get the uh, the device onto the market, and then in the regulatory vernacular, we do what's called a label expansion. We add additional claims, we add additional features to our device, one or two at a time. That would be like the second batter coming up and swinging for a, a base hit, the person moves from first to second, and so on and so on. Both strategies are very effective, both are equally good. But it really depends on the, the nature of the company, the amount of funding that they have, the right. risk tolerance that they have, all of those different things. So do you want to swing for a single or do you want to swing for a home run? Mike, I, I love the baseball analogy. I, I'm a former high school baseball coach. And it's about obviously knowing what's on your, who's on your team as well. I mean, if, if you have a bunch of power hitters and, and you, have, you can kind of uh, go to the plate with a little bit more reckless abandon perhaps. But, but I've always been, let's string a few hits together. Let's get some guys on base because you know what? A home run with nobody on base is not as impressive as a home run with everybody on base. So let's make a combination of those two things together. But Mike, parting words, parting thoughts on the topic of intended use and indications for use and why that matters. Share your your parting thoughts with our audience today. I think given that the majority of your audience, John, comes from an engineering and related background, I think the single most important thing that people should remember is apply the same concepts and philosophies that we learn as engineers to product design, apply that same kind of thinking, if you will, to label design, to crafting indication for use statements, or for that matter, designing an entire regulatory submission. There are many people that write regulatory submissions, be they 510Ks or de novos or PMAs and so on. There are very, very few of them that design them. And again, this is a topic of a different discussion, but there's a big difference between writing a submission and designing a submission. So as an engineer, we have a, a, a big advantage, quite frankly, coming to this field as opposed to some other folks, is that we, we have, or at least we should have, an appreciation of that design philosophy. And what I'm suggesting to your audience is to apply that to more than just the physical uh, nature of your product. Right. All right. Thanks, Mike. So, you know, my, my thoughts are this. Understand that intended use and your indications for use do have an impact on your design control, product development, risk management, everything you're going to do about bringing that product to market. It really does start with what you claim your product is, is going to do, and it's going to affect your product classification and all of the things that you're going to do thereafter. So be smart about that. 
If you have questions about that, of course, you can get a hold of Mike Drews. You can find Mike very easily on, well, just search for his name, last name, D-R-U-E-S. Mike writes for a lot of industry publications, has podcasts, and, you know, as much as he's been traveling, he might be at a location near you any day now. <laughs> so, so look Mike up. You can find him on LinkedIn. You can, you can learn more about vascular sciences and, and what he does. But again, he does a lot of consulting for med device companies of all shapes and sizes. He works with FDA. He works with Health Canada. You're going to want to talk to Mike about your, your indications for use and intended use challenges that you might have. This is John Spear. And as I mentioned earlier, I am the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru. Greenlight.Guru has an awesome software solution to help you manage and maintain your quality management system and any other documents and records. We also have uh, a feature set that's optimized around capturing, managing, and maintaining your design control activities. And we've integrated that with an ISO 14971 risk management feature set. You're going to want to check that out. Go to greenlight.guru and request the demo to learn more. This has been John Spear and my guest Mike Drews on the Global Medical Device Podcast.